The localised condition of planetary atmospheric condensation caused a malfunction in the visual orientation circuits, or, to put it in another way, the Doctor Who podcast. Yes, and welcome to the Doctor Who podcast. Welcome to the 1,418 people who have so far downloaded our last episode. And hello to the 383 followers on Twitter. And hello to the 277 members of the Doctor Who podcast forum. Great to have you on board. In this episode, we are going to be going all Scottish, all kiltish, all haggishish, if that's a word. And talking about the Big Finish trilogy featuring the return of Jamie McCrimmon to Doctor Who. Yes, it's all about Big Finish, it's all about audio and a little interview to go along with it as well. What more could you ask for? That's it for me, guys. That's the whole very episode. Very good. Very good. <laughs> You've obviously put a lot of work in. Haggish, haggish-ish is best words. Haggish-ish. Haggish-ish. Haggish, haggish, I think we should use that as our, our bird for a word. What did, we, what did we use last time? Robust or something? No, it was bespoke. Right. So we've all got to get the word haggish-ish in the recording at some point. Jolly good luck to you. Considering it, I don't think it's really a word, I think you're going to have a jolly old time trying to fit haggish-ish into this podcast, but hello right. James and hello Tom. <laughs> hello, to- hello Trev, hello Tom, how you doing? I'm good, it's lovely to see you. It's, lo- it's lovely to be back in the caravan at the same time, it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Mm, all three of us together again, <laughs> the great trio. Yeah, it does feel like a long time since the three of us were here in cyberspace together, and I was just saying to, to Trev before we started recording, it feels, oh, probably... The longest period of time, I think, since we actually started the DWP, um, that we haven't had all three of us together. And I was listening to the pair of you last night, because I've been away on holiday, as you know, and I haven't actually had access to the computer, which has been unbelievably alien to me. Um, But I was just listening to you two last night, and honestly, your geek out, I just so wanted to try and get in and start talking about the various different things. Sixth Doctor fishing, I was thinking, no, 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 it's Vengeance on Varos. I then had to get up and check my reference book and then thought bugger trevi's actually right again and honestly <laughs> so much work so much work had to go into listening to you two <laughs> so you've you've got that same problem too because i know when i don't do an episode with you guys and i listen to it later i'll catch myself suddenly talking to the screen and wondering why you guys aren't replying to me no. happen, happens, happens it's to good me to see lot. i'm not alone in that <laughs> But anyway, it, it, it's good to be back so we can all tell each other where we're wrong. We can all get things wrong in the same way we usually do spectacularly. Shall we start talking about what we're supposed to be talking about? What would that be, James? Please enlighten us. That would be the Sixth Doctor and Jamie Big Finish trilogy. The very first story in this trilogy is City of Spires and this is written by a chap called Simon Bovey who is a newcomer to Big Finish. She hasn't written for the main range before certainly and he was tasked with quite a task really, quite a mammoth task 
of actually reintroducing Jamie McCrimmon back to us after, oh, how long has it been since The Two Doctors? 1985, I think, wasn't it? 85, yes. So, what, uh, 25 years. Let's talk about this one. It's a historic story. It's almost a story we didn't really get uh, after The Highlanders with Jamie because we saw him in his natural environment well. We, we can hear him in his natural environment, given that the actual story, The Highlanders, is lost. Uh, but we can um, we can return again to the same kind of, you know, majestic Highland Hills of Scotland and listen to a much older Jamie McCrimmon. I was also going to say, too, it's almost a story we didn't get after the war games. Certainly there's been fan fiction written and there's been probably various blog posts and fanzine articles written about... What happened to Jamie after the Time Lords wiped his memory of most of the Doctor's adventures and returned him back to the Battle of Culloden? What would have happened to Jamie McCrimmon in the years after that? To to a certain extent, um, City of Spires does go a little bit of a way to redressing that and actually showing what would have happened to the Jamie character after the Time Lords returned him to his original time stream, I suppose. To an extent, I think, and, and certainly that's what I think the listener is supposed to to think. And, of course, later on, when you, when you start listening to um, Legends of the Cybermen, we begin to realise that isn't actually what happens, but more about that later. You get to see where Jamie's life would have gone had he not, you know, up roots and gone off and travelled the universe with a doctor. It's a really fascinating story, I do think, and, and, and one, of course, that f- forms a really important part of this trilogy. And like you're saying, James, there's, there's stuff in this story that resonates all the way through to the end of the trilogy with Legend of the Cybermen. Things are out of whack. Time is out of whack. We're um, getting anachronistic things like uh, oil drills uh, presented to us in the story, and, and we're getting characters like Rob Roy, who, who was certainly never anywhere near the um, time of when Jamie would have lived. No, that's right. We, we just need to say Rob Roy plays by a friend of the show, Charlie Ross. <laughs> it's a great performance, isn't it? <laughs> it's really interesting because I suppose for those people knowledgeable enough to know a little bit about Scottish history or, or about British history, we'll hear the Rob Roy character and go, he shouldn't be there. He, he's nowhere near the Battle of Culloden. He probably wasn't even born when that battle was going on. For certain people listening to it, the alarm bells are already ringing but for those that aren't, it's, it's then given a wonderfully satisfying conclusion later on in the trilogy. Well, I, I, I've got to say, I, I do like the way that Jamie is introduced. And I do like the way that um, he's billed as being 20 years older than he was the last time we saw him as well. So that does quite quite neatly get around the idea that Fraser Hines does sound, as you naturally would, a little bit older than he was at the time of uh, recording the war games and so on. But what is interesting is that the, the sort of actor chemistry that we talked about last week between uh, Fraser Hines and Patrick Troughton is very much in evidence between Fraser Hines and Colin Baker. But then they're two skilled actors who are uh, recreating a relationship, this, this very close relationship, but they do it with incredible subtlety, I've got to say. Um, it, it, it's nice to hear... Uh, Fraser Hines playing Jamie as if he's never met the Doctor because he claims he because without wanting to spoil it spoil anything for anyone um, he does claim that he's never met the Doctor but they but they are working together in a thoroughly satisfying way which 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 does explain clearly why those two characters were companions in the first instance. I think one of the really key words you're saying there is recreating and it's fascinating to watch the way Fraser gave us the Jamie character in the two Doctors where of course he he, he knows who the Doctor is once he knows that he's regenerated. There's that wonderful chemistry between the characters it's not only recreating the the jamie doctor relationship but it's really starting a whole new relationship from scratch yeah. i suppose it, it, it is and, and and part of that i felt 
was overplayed a little bit, particularly in, in this story. I, the, the amount of conversations that the Doctor and Jamie had concerning, you know, whether or not they'd met in the past or not, and the Doctor said, well, yes, you did, you travelled with me, and Jamie's saying, no, no, I never travelled with you. That That happens a number of times, and for me, it felt like padding. And if they weren't actually going to address that issue, as they didn't, not until the very end of the trilogy, then I felt it should have just been, you know, perhaps mentioned once or twice, and then left to the end of the three plays, except, you know, we kept on coming back to it again and again. And I, that, that was one of the downsides for me, certainly. I, I wouldn't say padding with the story. I, I felt a, a little bit of a runaround. <laughs> certainly once mm, we got past mm. the first episode, there, there seemed to be many episodes which seemed to be nothing but the Doctor and Jamie going to this point and then having like, <laughs> you know, like a battle on the way, then getting to this point and then going to this point. Um, they yeah, they, they yeah. seem to spend a lot of time travelling and then during that travelling, of course, there was plenty of time, like you're saying, to suddenly say, don't you remember me, Jamie? I'm the Doctor. I've regenerated a couple of times since I last met you. And that, that was played over and over and over, I, I think, because those two characters really had nothing else to do other than explore, even superficially, this mystery as to why Jamie doesn't remember the Doctor at all. No, I, I quite agree. And I think what you've done, really, is actually underpin what I think is actually the flaw in this play. And there's a lot of focus on the dialogue between the Sixth Doctor and Jamie, which, you know, I like as a fan. I'm sitting there, particularly the very first time that they meet. And Jamie is um, going under the name of... Oh, can't remember now. What was the name, Black guys? Donald. Thank you very much, Black Donald. And I like the way that they suddenly, you know came together, the Doctor explained things, and Jamie gradually bought into the Doctor's story. But aside from that, you know, there was some very, very cardboard characters delivered, I have to say, by some surprisingly decent actors, um, you know, outside of this play. Uh, Georgia Moffat was in this. She played Alice. And I, I felt she was going through the paces here. Absolutely no conviction whatsoever. And played part in a relatively small... Um, plot divergent if that's the correct term um you know in order to meet what i thought was a very unsatisfactory monster well that, that makes sense i mean it's interesting that you say george moffat wasn't really doing too much because what, what i got from this was that it was a modern day retelling of a second door second doctor story um, and as far as I could work out, Georgia Moffat or Alice was doing exactly what Victoria Waterfield or exactly what Zoe Harriet would have been doing. It is the Doctor and Jamie show, and you've got a little bit of diversion from the companion. And in total fairness, she had quite a good character. She was ballsy. She was uh, upfront. She was quite willing to go and get her hands dirty. And, le and let's be fair, the first time we meet her, she's saving the Doctor and Jamie, uh, but, which is which is kind of unusual. But no, I, I, I do understand what you mean in terms of um, being a bit of a runaround. But again, perhaps I'm forgiving um, the Big Finish team a little bit too much, but I've seen Seeds of Death, and um, so so I know that, uh, and I've seen the War Games, so I know that that whole era of Doctor Who was just about escape, capture, escape, capture, escape, capture. And I think there is a balance to be struck between creating the era faithfully and actually following what Big Finish have done since they've started, and that's actually fleshing out some of the parts that haven't really been given a great deal of attention on television before. And The Sixth Doctor is a classic case in point. There was, you know, 
Yeah, Some yeah. people will say the Sixth Doctor is very, very two-dimensional on television. Whereas if you listen to the way that he portrays the role, or Colin Baker portrays the role on audio, all of a sudden you've got a very believable, a very likable, a very affable Doctor. And I think what Big Finish are trying to do is both things at the same time, and they're not really succeeding in this story. And I, I think you have got a recreation of a second Doctor story. You got the feel, but they've also created all of the bad parts as well. And that is the runaround. That is the long, drawn-out story where nothing really happens. To a certain extent, Big Finish uh, becomes a little bit of a victim of their own success because they the standard uh, of scripts, the standard of acting, the standard of production is so relentlessly high. But if something in some way somehow misses the mark a little bit, it's immediately obvious because, as I say, the, the, the output is so consistently good. I, I understand what you're saying about um, George Moffat and, and the Alice character, but it was one of those things where I didn't realise it was George Moffat, and when I found out that it was her, I was like, oh, even better. Because, because, because as I say, I mean, I just kind of substitute her for... Uh, for Deborah Watling, and you know, I've got a, a set of opinions about uh, the character of Victoria Waterfield, but next to Victoria Waterfield, Alice fits right in, I think. Right, before we get into talking about Record of Titan in any great detail, let's play for you an interview that I was fortunate enough to conduct with the author and director and casting director of this particular play, and that was Mr. Barnaby Edwards. And Barnaby has got a very, very long CV, shall we say, when it comes to the world of Doctor Who. And one of these most famous roles, aside from writing and being so heavily involved with the big Finnish plays, Barnaby is probably most well known for being a Dalek. And he has played a Dalek on the new series since 2005, right up until the travesty of a story called Victory of the Daleks. And... I was fortunate enough to be able to discuss his career as a Dalek with him as well. So you sit back and enjoy this interview. We talk about Record of Titan first, and then we move into more familiar Dalek territory. I've always wanted to talk Daleks. I have the very great honour and pleasure of being joined by an actor, a writer, a director, a casting director. In fact, if I read all of his CV out, then quite honestly, we'd be here all day. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Mr Barnaby Edwards, welcome to the Doctor Who podcast. Thank you very much, James. It's lovely to be here again. It's wonderful to have you back. This time, we're going to be focusing on the recent Big Finish trilogy. Oh, I'm not quite sure whether this has got a generic name. We've had the Klein trilogy. We've had the Charlie finale. Um, is this just the kind of Jamie Returns trilogy? I think, yeah, it's the Jamie and the Sixth Doctor trilogy. Okay, um, well, let's talk about Jamie's return then. How did this come about? How did it get off the ground? Well, we'd been working with uh, Fraser quite a lot on the Companion Chronicles, and he was very keen to do more uh, Big Finish. And we thought, he's so brilliant, he's so good. It would be a lovely way to get him from the Companion Chronicles into the main range. Uh, and it's always very tricky with Big Finish because we don't want to, you know, if the Doctors are, are alive, then we'll use the Companions that go with those Doctors. Mm. Um, but obviously we're only using uh, Doctors from Doctor 5 onwards. Um, so we're racking our brains about how to get older companions back into into the main range because we've done such we've had such a good time with them on the on the Companion Chronicles that it seemed ridiculous not to use them. And it just sort of fitted because we thought, no, hang on a sec, the Sixth Doctor has had an adventure uh, with Jamie and... Um, and so it's not out of the question that they can be reunited. And then the trick was to try and work out how to do that in a believable manner. 
um, and indeed later on how to bring another um, mm. old companion back. <laughs> so what happens? Someone has this idea, right, we really want to bring this character back. We know Fraser's going to be up for it. Do the three authors, or is it, um, is it somebody else? Is it Nicholas? Gets everybody together and say, well, how are we going to do this? And I mean, how is it, how's the idea presented to you by the time you're commissioned to write one of these three plays? Well, it does go through a process. So first of all, we ask Fraser and Colin whether they would be interested in working together, and they both said that they would be. And then a sort of overall idea is f- formulated by Alan Barnes, our script editor, and by Nick Briggs, who the artistic uh, director, uh, executive producer of Big Finish. So they formulate something like that. And then that was about when I vaguely heard that this was going to happen. And I was asked, would I be interested in writing one of the stories? And then Alan Barnes asked for pitches for various things. And uh, I think he got a couple of authors in. uh, And just once they were in place, that's the uh, the first author and the, the last author, once they were in place... He said, would I like to do the middle story? And then i that's when I submitted my idea. And it's an idea that I'd already had. I'd already wanted to do a Six Doctor story involving the Titanic. Um, and I'd floated that. I, I think I had bad timing because I floated that at about the same time that they did the Titanic episode <laughs> on television. So uh, initially we that idea was sort of uh, rejected by Cardiff and then put on the back burner. But uh, so once that's all happened and once we've cleared with Cardiff the rights to use Jamie um, and uh, to put him together with the Sixth Doctor and then cleared those stories, then that's when the writing, the writing process begins and we can start to shape the whole thing. But it was always conceived as a as a far more connected trilogy than, than other ones that we've done before. Mm. And for that reason, I was wondering whether or not, you know, you spent a significant amount of time with Simon Bovey and Mike Maddox trying to make certain, you know, that the middle segment you know, followed on nicely from uh, City of Spires and led neatly into Legends of the Cybermen. Well, there's also the... Uh, we did have quite a lot of toing and fraying about that, but there's also a companion chronicle that fits in just before mm. my story, mm. uh, Knight's Black Agents. And so all of this... I mean, that's the main purpose of Alan Barnes, <laughs> apart from <laughs> apart from looking decorative um, and being a great writer, is that he has to uh, you know, take these various elements. You know, I got the starting point of my story, uh, so I knew where the previous story had finished, including Knight's Black Agents, mm. and I knew where I had to get to. And it was my job to bridge that gap and still tell a story while I did it. And once I'd written mine, I know that they had to readjust some stuff in Legend of the Cybermen. Uh, And my had, for example, there is a character in my story that does come back in Legend Mm. of the Cybermen that didn't come back in Legend of the Cybermen before I'd written my story. They liked the story and they liked who I'd cast as this person, so they brought that character back <laughs> I see. looking exclusively at your story here that you wrote and you directed there's several references to literary classics really i think littered throughout your script and you know the line between reality and fiction is blurred now is you know looking at your back catalogue if you like your adaption of phantom of the opera and, and looking at your current projects too you clearly enjoy involving or, or writing about books or stories uh, that are very very well established yeah I mean, I've always loved literature and I've always loved books. And I think, uh, again, it depends very much on your know, early influences and what you brought up watching. And I was there for Tom Baker and Tom Baker's Doctor Who 
uh, is a very literary Doctor Who, and and it's also got an awful lot of um, references to to old classic Hollywood movies. Uh, you know, lots of Frankenstein's and Dracula's and uh, the Mummy and things like that. And that's what I grew up on. I watched all those movies. I read all those books, and um, so I think. You know, my era of Doctor Who and my idea of Doctor Who is much more literary, mm. I think, than than uh, than say if I'd been very much into the first Doctor or the seventh Doctor. Mm. Uh, and I think that's, that's everyone has their own thing. I mean, I, I I read a lot, so I find it quite easy to put in a lot of of literary references and and hopefully you know my stories aren't just uh i hope they're not just a series of, of literary clues i'd hate to be some sort of uh doctor who kit williams who just puts a load of clues in there thing no i you know i, I like books and I, I i find it easier to to uh think of books and ideas from books and indeed films than than i might do moments in history or um or bits of science and things. I mean, all the science in my stories is uh, based on an idea, but isn't absolutely <laughs> accurate. I love science, but but I, I think in terms of Doctor Who, I think if you just make a story about science, it's um, it can be very dull. Um, and I think you need to use science f- to to sort of further. Um, further your storytelling so you base it on something that's that's you know an interesting scientific thing i mean there's a bit in the wreck of the titan which is well there are quite a lot of bits where the doctor is theorizing about various different things trying to get a hold on what's happening and why reality could happen and all those things are based on real scientific conjectures but they're used solely for the purpose of storytelling. I mean, I'm a huge fan of, of Douglas Adams, and he was massively more scientific than I will ever be. But, you know, he knew that, that if you just wrote a book about science, it would be quite dull. So you use science as a as a springboard in order to bounce off some interesting ideas. Mm. Well, certainly from a listener's point of view, I mean, I, I heard this play probably about two or three days after it popped through my letterbox. Uh, and certainly it was interesting seeing how many different elements were all tied together. And of course... The, the Doctor being at the very, very core of it. It's just pure joy to listen to. This episode of the Doctor Who podcast will be being listened to by people who have heard this particular play, so I'm not going to be spoiling anything by kind of giving away the ending just a little bit, but um, <laughs> I have to say, I, I, it was one of those moments after you've listened to a play and you kind of slap your forehead because I, I didn't see the ending coming in any way, shape or form whatsoever. And of course, when you look back, in a way, all of the clues were there. They were quite obvious that we were leading back to the land of fiction. Oh, I'm delighted that you didn't. I'm you annoyed didn't that I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I try to do as many different red herrings. and Because yeah. the only way to do it is, is to do that kind of a story. I mean, the story doesn't rest absolutely on the, on the, the, the resolution of it, as it were. But the, the only way to do that kind of thing is to keep having the the doctor trying to trying to work it out and to give plausible explanations and that was one of the the best things about writing it was Mm. trying to come up right okay i know really why this is happening but i need to give you five different explanations (laughs) that are equally as possible well um i fell for everyone i think pretty much good (laughs) well so did the doctor that puts you on a par with the doctor (laughs) right i think you're just being extremely complimentary there but uh, (laughs) but yeah it was it was a great story lots and lots of twists and turns and as i said the literary references I, i i appreciated as well um which kind of leads us nicely into some work that you've been doing very recently there's a new audio company formed called Textbook Stuff, which I understand that you were rather key to. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's producing some really exciting literary audios. Well, uh, well it's sort of that came <laughs> from doing a lot of big finishes and specifically from doing uh, the Phantom of the Opera adaptation mm. because uh, I read a lot of books when we were pitching initially for, for Phantom because um, I was trying to think. I went through the BBC archives to find what was available on on. CD and what had been released uh, uh, on radio, uh, uh, broadcast on radio. And so I read, I don't know, 20 or 30 books with a view to doing an adaptation of them. And we eventually settled on Phantom of the Opera because that had not been done properly mm. by the BBC ever. And um, when I was doing that, I just kept thinking, there are so many other brilliant books of this genre that that could really benefit from having a a, a good audio adaptation. And then from that developed the idea of maybe of maybe doing some more full cast dramatizations but obviously that's a very expensive process and also bizarrely it's not uh, it's very good for radio audiences and it's very good for sort of big finish listeners in terms of you know, getting a story and, and things like that but in the wider world people far prefer unabridged audiobooks rather than any form of abridgment or dramatization uh, as you can see you know, the harry potter audiobooks uh, read by stephen fry uh, in this country and and by jim dale in america they're completely unabridged and uh, they you know, they sell cartloads um and they're much more popular than any form of sort of dramatization or abridgment so i was thinking well i i, I don't want to just do plain unabridged audiobooks and then i developed with a sound designer who indeed did The Wreck of the Titan, a brilliant, brilliant sound designer and, and composer called Howard Carter. We developed an idea of how we could do unabridged audiobooks, but with full sound design and effects. And um, we've now uh, produced four, and we've got another four coming, and uh, they're going down very well. We've got uh, some Dickens ghost stories and uh, Edgar Allan Poe, Pit and the Pendulum, and other stories, uh, Dracula's Guest by Bram Stoker, uh, M.R. James' Ghost Stories, and uh, indeed a collection, four collections of, of poetry. So it's going, it's going very well, textbook stuff. Um, and uh, I, I, it's a very exciting project to do. Uh, and you know, I've learned so much for over the years from working with Big Finish for 10 years. Um, of course. Uh, and picked up so many sort of tips and things like that and it's just it's very nice to be doing something exciting and big finish are supporting it you can buy it on big finish you can buy it elsewhere you can buy it on itunes and amazon and uh, play.com and and another 25 distributors <laughs> and those deals took a long time to do <laughs> no I'm, I'm, I'm sure uh, for, for me ever since i listened to phantom of the opera I've been absolutely hypnotised whenever I hear Peter Guinness' voice. So it seems appropriate that you've got him to uh, take part in Dracula. And we can bring you a clip of that reading right now. Excellent. It was an old, rambling, heavy-built house of the Jacobean style, with heavy gables and windows, unusually small, and set higher than was customary in such houses, and was surrounded with a high brick wall massively built. Indeed, on examination, it looked more like a fortified house than an ordinary dwelling. It's been so long empty that some kind of absurd prejudice has grown up about it. As to what there was against the house itself, she could not tell. She had often asked, but no one could inform her. But there was a general feeling that there was something. 
there, on the great high-backed carved oak chair by the right side of the fireplace, sat an enormous rat, steadily glaring at him with baleful eyes. Fantastic stuff there. So what, what have we got for the future? You say you, you, you've got eight dramatisations here. Is there any plans to release any more? Uh, well, yes, it depends very much on how these uh, these readings sell. Uh, but I've already recorded two new poetry collections, which will be out at the beginning of next year. Um, and uh, I'm hoping to do another series of ghost, uh, ghost stories. Um, I'd quite like to do some Arthur Conan Doyle ones and... Uh, so hopefully those we'll, we'll start making those at the beginning of next year. Uh, and if you go to the textbookstuff.com website, there's there are polls on there and things like that. So you can vote for possible new stories that you'd like us to do. So I'm very much hoping that, that there'll be a lot of interactivity between the listeners and the company and that together we will decide what kind of stuff we'd like to do. Um, so, yes, it's, it's worth checking, checking out on the website. Right, moving on then um, to some some other really quite exciting stuff in your capacity as an actor you are probably one of the most established daleks since doctor who returned to our screens in 2005 yeah i've done i've done i can't remember it's either 10 or 11 or 12 episodes now i can't, I can't remember it seems it's fantastic you know i've been doing daleks since since dalek in series 1 and um it's a real joy. I've, I'm on my third doctor now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. I think you must have seen my notes. I was, uh, I was going to ask you. You know, what, what's it like being on set with a, a different lead actor? Because you're one of the consistent elements of the show that's lasted through the Russell T Davis era into the Stephen Moffat era, along with a certain Mr Briggs providing voices. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's mm. it's exciting working with with what you find with a new actor who comes in is that. That they inform the a new person playing the doctor will inform the entire show the entire way it runs it's not just a question of having a different actor because each they'll each have you know david had a very different technique from from chris and uh, matt has a very different technique from david and from that it informs the way the entire thing is shot the way it's written the way other actors work with them and it's very exciting to do that. Matt is a tremendously exciting person to be on set with because, as I'm sure a lot of the, your listeners will, will know from watching Doctor Who Confidential or seeing uh, Matt sort of being interviewed or filmed on set, he's an incredibly um, uh, sort of eccentric personality and very unpredictable. Not, not in a sort of, you know, he doesn't have mood swings or anything like that, but he's, he's so sort of... He's always thinking of exciting possibilities and, you know, no take is ever the same with him, which sounds like a nightmare. But actually what you what he gives you is he'll give you five or six different versions of each scene so that when it comes into the editing studio, uh, the editors can put those together. And that's when you get I mean, I think Matt has been fantastic. He's been a a complete revelation for someone so young to be able to do such a brilliant, um, uh, mature performance uh, as the doctor. And I think he's simultaneously very trustworthy as a character and also uh, quite sort of uh, unpredictable, which is a very hard thing to pull off. And he's bags of charisma, um, and I think it, you know it, that's entirely down down to Matt. The writing 
flows from that. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's a very exciting thing to do. He was very he was very excited to work with the Daleks for the first time. Now I can imagine, and I think that's probably got to be an occasion for any actor, you know, um, taking on the role of the Doctor to meet the Daleks for the very first time. And of course, I mean, does does he go up, take a look inside to see who's in there, or does he get to meet you beforehand? Uh, yes. Well, we rehearse um, out of our shells, as it were, because it's just much quicker to to do that. And I did this with David and I did it with Chris. On the first day of shooting his Dalek story, Matt's Dalek story, I went up to him and said, you know, how do you, because we rehearse out of the shells, how do you, do you want me to make eye contact with you or do you want me to just look sort of, you know, below thing? And he said, no, I'd like you to make eye contact with me. Um, and that's fantastic for me because mm. it obviously mm. informs what I all the movements that I do inside the Dalek. But obviously, it's very good for Matt as well, which is very sweet. Because um, in anything, even when it's just a close up of Matt, I am just behind the con- the camera. I'm I'm his eye stuff. So even when I'm not in the Dalek, I I was on set much more than I was in during David or during Chris's right. thing, um, right. because I was Matt's eye level, which is great. It was mm. it feels really good, and and um, obviously he. He liked it himself, so that's very good to to do because it's a quite a that gives a whole different thing to me and it informs what I do and all the movements that I do if I know when I'm pulling my eye contact away from him and everything. So it's mm. it, it's good for me and and uh, hopefully good for the show. <laughs> no, absolutely. One thing I really have to to ask you about. Clearly, you knew that the the Daleks were up for a bit of a revamp uh, long before any of the rest of us did. Now, I read the article in Doctor Who magazine where you talk about the uh, the physical differences. You got a lot more space, and um, I, I I've heard that you know this was a request from all of those who were inside the Daleks. You know, in order to get a nice comfy chair and a small Mini bar. Um, is, is, is that really the case? Is, are they easier to move around? <laughs> uh, I wish I could say yes, but no. They are they're, they're at least twice as hard to move around as the old ones um, because they are they're, they're much heavier. And the old one was pretty heavy, but they're much heavier. And if you think about it, you know when you when I used to sit in the old one, my elbows touched the sides and my knees touch the sides and so if I was doing turns if I was doing movements or doing anything like that I could literally just hold the Dalek using my body and move it very quickly in the new one because they're so much bigger inside you have to you can't your elbows can't touch the outsides and your knees can't touch the outsides at the same time so you literally have to hold the Dalek on the inside with your hands and swing it round you and it's really heavy the heads the head alone is about four or five stone um and uh, it's incredibly hard to move. Um, also, when you're sitting down in the old Daleks, you could see out. If you sit down in the new Daleks, because they're so much taller, you can't. So you have to sort of half crouch out of your seat in order to see out of the of the neck ring of the Daleks. Um, and the servos in the head, because the eye stalk is much heavier than before, the servos in the head make it so much harder to hear anything. Um, so you've just got <laughs> in your ear the whole time. That said, I, I did. I've done some live appearances in the new Daleks, and uh, kids absolutely love them. I think the the primary colour thing was a great idea for for kids. And let's not forget, you know, we love 
uh, Doctor Who, but but um, we've all grown up. We we love Doctor Who because we saw it when we were kids, and Doctor Who is for kids. And I think these new Daleks, although I thought they were a bit of a shock when I first saw them, um, I think kids love them and respond to them really, really brilliantly. So they obviously know what they're doing, and I don't. That, well, I, I think um, it, it, it they're very very plugged into. Uh a young following and um you're right the daleks the kids that i know certainly my uh my niece who is still incredibly excited about daleks and she's only just well she's just under five years old when she saw the new daleks she noticed that they were different and she pointed them out and you know has been saying that's a blue one that's a yellow one and uh, yeah i think i think they seem to be a complete homage at one point to perhaps the Peter Cushion Daleks but also they've plugged into you know the new the future audience um, of, of the show as well but of course it's uh, it's exceptionally interesting to hear what it's like to actually have to maneuver one of these things because they do look like articulated lorries compared to you know the old <laughs> versions um, yes. do you miss the old <laughs> versions do you sometimes you know sit on set with your other you know, operators thinking, well, wish we the other ones were back. They were so much easier and comfier. Oh, it's a, it's funny, isn't it? You just, it's, I, I don't want them to, to keep the old ones just for me. I do, I love the old one because yeah, the one that's in Dalek was built around me, mm. and that's that's like having a costume made for you. You feel, I feel really fond of the old one, and and I'm pleased to say that the the one that I play um, in in the victory of the Daleks, the khaki Dalek that I play for um, all of the bunker scenes. That is my old Dalek. Oh, that's the one that's, that's from the Dalek. The same Dalek, right? So, okay. Yeah. So I, I get to say oh. goodbye to my Dalek. <laughs> <laughs> And then I exterminate myself. <laughs> Indeed. Well, we were saying when we were reviewing that particular episode that um, we actually felt sorry for the old version of the Daleks. And uh, it sounds like we had a level of empathy with you there as well. So. Oh, I know. Oh, well, it's, I mean, it's, it's great that they went, because I think the khaki Daleks look brilliant. Me too. Absolutely me brilliant. Too. And I think it's brilliant that the old style Daleks went out in a blaze of glory. <laughs> you know, they've never looked as good as they looked in Victory of the Daleks. Um, and it's... Um, you know, it's fantastic to sort of say, you know, ring out the old and ring in the new. Indeed, yeah. Well, Barnaby, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you about a variety of different things you've been up to recently. Um, I've always wanted to talk Daleks with someone who actually knows what it's like to be inside a Dalek. So uh-huh. that's, um, <laughs> that, that's a little uh, ambition of mine fulfilled today. So thank you very much indeed for doing that. And, uh, and, and also coming on and just telling us about textbook stuff uh, of which you're, you're just about to hear another trailer and this Ooh. one's going to be for the signalman um which is of course a charles dickens story so thank you very much indeed barnaby you're very welcome and we'll speak to you soon hopefully excellent take care thank you very much always lovely to speak to you in an old abbey town down in this part of the country a long long while ago there officiated as sexton and gravedigger in the churchyard one Gabriel Grubb. Gabriel Grubb! Gabriel Grubb! I'm afraid my friends want you, Gabriel, said the goblin. I'm afraid my friends want you, Gabriel. The story of the English bride, Basta. Why not not to call so slight a thing a story? Well, it's all one, but it's true. I find from what I have overheard that Mistress is haunted. How haunted? By a dream. What dream? By a dream of a face. 
Perhaps I hide the truth from myself, but I do not think that when this began, I meditated to do him any wrong. I stole down after him, creeping under certain shrubs which grow in that place, and none but devils know with what terror I, a full-grown man, tracked the footsteps of that baby as he approached the water's brink. He had hardly spoken the words when a sound resembling a faint groan appeared to issue from the interior of the case. Thank you, Barnaby, and thank you, James, for uh, taking the time to do that interview. Fantastic stuff. Getting back to Wreck of the Titan, the uh, middle part of this uh, Jamie McCrimmon trilogy, I suppose, as it's called, we left the Sixth Doctor and Jamie on the deck of the Titanic, about to hit a rather large ice cube. It's an interesting story because I think it it expands upon City of Spies to a certain extent and, and, and does add some interesting layers of mystery, which don't really get sold in this story, but certainly get paid off in Legend of the Cybermen to a certain extent. Mm, yeah, to a certain extent, I think it's probably about right. Um, I, I think this story out of the three of them is the best for me. I enjoyed this the best. And it's not just because I got a chance to chat to the author and director of it. But I, I think it was just the best constructed story. Um, there was a genuine air of mystery for me. I didn't know where it was going. Um, there were so many different elements being drawn into the story. There was lots of references to you know, uh, fictional characters and fictional stories. And you're thinking, well, hang on a second, isn't that genuine? How does that fit into Doctor Who? And the the dialogue with Jamie continues, particularly through, I think it's episode two or three, where they're stuck on an iceberg. And that's basically just an excuse, really, for the two characters to start having this long, interesting conversation. doesn't really move the plot on particularly but as, as as opposed to having a relatively boring story um as a backdrop record of titan certainly had enough things for me to keep me interested and to keep me intrigued that's really interesting because i sort of had slightly the opposite effect to this that I, I viewed Wreck of the Titan as the middle part of a six-part story, and and certainly with a lot of six-part stories that i've been that i've had experience with they, they can be quite padded they can be quite boring while this story interested me i think there was a lot of run around in this story as well there, there did seem to be a lot of time going from one location to another what redeemed it for me i think a little bit was the uh actress miranda Rayson, who uh played one of the uh, key roles in this story now she also appeared in uh, daleks and manhattan and evolution of the daleks from a few years ago she she was the right. dancer who had mm-hmm. the boyfriend who was uh, turned into the uh hey. Pig creature, or whatever you call. Now, now she she plays a very interesting character in the story, or or characters in the story, without giving too much away. And she kept my interest throughout this entire story. No, it's interesting. I mean, I I did enjoy her characters, and that was Tess and Myra, I think. Um, mm. And again, it was mirrored by the companion or Tessie's companion. And I just liked the way that you retain the same actors but they took on new identities. And that's when I first started thinking, hang on a second, they were mining Phil, drilling for ink in part one in City Inspires. All of a sudden, we're now talking to fictional characters. And it just it just really began to make me think, I have absolutely no idea where this is going. And you listen to the Doctor trying to figure things out. I think he comes to about three or four different suggestions as to what's actually going on. All of a sudden, it's an avatar, then it's a computer game. I didn't see 
any of these as red herrings at the time. I was quite happy to go along with the doctor's reasoning. Um, and when when you do get the final reveal, um, which obviously we talked about during the interview, so we've already spoiled that for you if <laughs> if, if you haven't listened to it. But I, I I think for me that was it was a massive shock. It was really really good to see it coming, and at the end of it, I couldn't wait to listen to to, to the third play in the trilogy. I think it's probably a good point to move on to the third part of the trilogy, Legend of the Cybermen. It's interesting to see the way that this whole thing resolves. So I'll throw it over to you, chaps. What did you actually think of the ending of this trilogy? For me, it, it was wonderful to listen to Legend of the Cybermen and get some resolution to some of the things that we've been enjoying for the past eight episodes. Really interesting that not only do we get some answers, but we get some more questions too, mm. which was really interesting and and of course before you even put the cd in or or fire up the mp3 you know the cybermen are going to be in this you sort of wonder how that i mean by the time we get to the end of wreck of the titan you go how are the cybermen going to be anywhere near the legend of the cybermen story it's just such a interesting question that that you can hardly wait to fire up this particular story and see how it's going in the last couple of weeks i've received my DVD of Revenge of the Cybermen. And I've said before that the Cybermen are my favourite adversary over the Daleks easily. Before we before you actually get into talking about the story per se, do you think the Cybermen are particularly well served as enemies in this story? I mean, I've, I've heard them in, uh, in Cybermen, the actual Cybermen Big Finish Adventures, and they're brilliant, mm. they're, they're lumbering, they're dangerous, they're frightening. Do, do, do you think that the Cybermen are better served in this adventure than they maybe have been in the TV series? Absolutely. I, I, I would totally agree, merely because I think the genius of this story is, and I'm going to be spoilerish, guys, so if you don't want to know about this story, then turn off now or <laughs> go listen to Podshock or something. That the beginning of Ledger of the Cybermen, they basically reintroduced the white robots mm. from the Patrick Troughton story, The Mind Robber. Now, I think that is a stroke of genius that it not only gets you into the thing that, okay, they're in the land of fiction in this story, but we're also with the Cybermen because robots, Cybermen, conversion, it all seems pretty seamless to me. And, and I thought that was an absolutely... I mean, I mean, to me, it seemed an obvious way of getting the Cybermen into the story and a reason for the Cybermen wanting to convert the land of fiction to cybernetic entity. No, I, I agree. I think I think the answer to your broad question there, Tom, for me, is also an unresounding yes. The way Big Finish used their Cybermen is far, far better than a lot of the modern-day uh, episodes that we've seen on television, I think. Uh, but in the context of this particular story, um, for the reasons that you've mentioned, they could have introduced absolutely anything into this story because it was set in the land of fiction. And just take a listen to the cast list on the back of the CD here. Uh, you've, got, you've got Jamie, you've got Zoe, the Artful Dodger, Count Dracula, Rob Roy McGregor, Captain Nemo, and Long John Silver. Right now, that to me, I mean, it does sound like you know a really odd recipe of ingredients for a Doctor Who story, and for me, I have to say it didn't work. Um, this particular story, I found very, very weak. I found it quite confusing, and perhaps my opinion of it being weak is because I didn't understand it particularly. Um, I 
did listen to it in two or three chunks, but couldn't really summon up the enthusiasm to try and finish it off, which is a massive shame. And I think the reason why I ended up really not enjoying it was when I realised that Jamie wasn't really Jamie. And I was so disappointed. And I thought, you've had the opportunity here, Big Finish, to reintroduce the Jamie McCrimmon. And what do you do? You bring back some kind of fictional version of him. We were certainly set up all the way back at the beginning of this trilogy that we haven't got the Jamie that we're used to from the classic series. That we have a Jamie that doesn't remember the Doctor, that never travelled with the Doctor, that has to build up his adventures from scratch. I wasn't at all massively disappointed in the fact that we learnt in in Legend Mm. of the Cybermen that Jamie was a fictional character. That didn't annoy me. Um, What the main thing annoyed me was, and, and you mentioned her name, was Wendy Padbury. She annoyed me beyond belief. While she was a fictional character, I didn't ever have in my mind that she was Zoe. Even when at the end it was revealed that Zoe was the mastermind behind the land of fiction, I never really felt it was the Zoe character I was seeing in my mind's eye. No, I I know what you mean concerning Zoe to an extent. I did get the feeling that she was nothing like the character that I knew (laughs) uh, from the TV series, and I think that was just a problem that Wendy Padbury probably had in trying to recreate Zoe. Although having said that, as you would expect, in the special features on the CD, she says that she walks straight back into the role as if she hadn't left it. Um, I I, I beg to differ. Um, I I do think it was just a massive misuse of both the characters of Jamie and Zoe. Jamie because he wasn't real and also the script toyed with the audience because at one point Jamie does get all of his memories back from travelling with a doctor and you think, ah, okay, so this is the real Jamie only then to have it all taken away from us at a later point when he finds out that he has ink running through his veins instead of blood. I agree, but I, I want to talk about something else quickly before we wind this up. Um, that that one word, ink. Hmm. Now, it's something that seems to be running through this entire trilogy, that uh, in City of Spires they're mining for ink or, or, or they're drilling for ink. In Wreck of the Titan they're doing the same sort of thing. And in Legend of the Cybermen you know, the ink is used as well. Is the whole reason for this trilogy that the Cybermen need the ink for some reason? Because during Legend of the Cybermen, they spend a lot of the story converting fictional characters to Cybermen or or cyber-type creatures. Is the whole reason they're mining ink is for that reason? I'm not entirely certain if it's the entire plot reason, and I'm probably going to contradict myself now from when you asked me that question before we pressed the record button, Trev. But... I believe it was Zoe who, in her position as the new master of the Land of Fiction, was able to draw all of these characters in to help fight the Cybermen who had invaded the Land of Fiction and then realised they could convert all the fictional characters and add to their numbers that way. Um, so I, yeah. think, I, I think it was partly Zoe's plan to draw the Sixth Doctor back in, or not necessarily the Sixth Doctor, but the Doctor back in, recreate Jamie, recreate the Artful Dodger, Captain Nemo, Maid Marion, etc. But the Cybermen didn't actually need the ink. I think they needed it by default, and that was because had the ink not been there, there wouldn't have been any fictional characters to convert. But were they behind it? I don't think so. Well, I mean, I, I, I was going to ask the question, I suppose, which if the Cybermen weren't behind it, who was mining the ink in the first of this trilogy? 
and the second of this trilogy. I mean, I mean, to me that that seems the whole essence of what this whole trilogy is about. Who's behind the ink? And and the Doctor says as much. Wasn't that Zoe though? In order to try and create characters to draw into the land of fiction, and eventually was the reason as to why the Sixth Doctor and Jamie were drawn in. I mean, could you not say that the whole of the first and second play were set in the land of fiction? Absolutely, mm. absolutely, I agree. Both both the first and second stories were in the land yeah. of fiction. The, the whole trilogy's in in the land of fiction. But what was the ultimate reason for the mining of the ink? To combat the Cybermen. The Cybermen had invaded. Now, I can't, I can't remember how it was explained, but Zoe explained how the Cybermen came to invade the land of fiction, and Zoe ended up taking them into the land of fiction, I think. I get that, but, I mean, I don't understand why there was such a deficit of ink when one of the major points of Legend of the Cybermen was when you cut Jamie, he bleeds ink. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I don't know whether or not there was a deficit, and I'm not quite sure why it was required to mine in the same way you would extract oil out of a mine uh, in the first story and indeed store all this ink in a submarine uh, in in Record of Titan. But I don't think it's something that's explained particularly adequately um, and certainly not adequately enough for me to explain it to you in a robust fashion. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I, I think I've taken the elements of this trilogy that I've enjoyed and that was the interaction between the characters. Um, the actual plotting of it has got Alan Barnes fingerprints all over it. And for me, Alan Barnes doesn't actually write for Big Finish's audiences. He writes for himself. And I think that is very evident in a number of the past plays that he's written now. So convoluted and they play around with strange little bizarre fan ideas. Um, And I've heard him in special features as well, uh, where he said that we're not background music for listeners you know we want to challenge our listeners and I've got no problem Mm. with that but at the same time I enjoy this because I couldn't figure out precisely what was going on I I would agree there's there's lots of wonderful things along the way and and while I don't dislike Legend of the Cybermen to the extent that you do I mean there were certainly lots of elements of this last of the trilogy that confused well not confused me but just lost me along the way Mm. that because Legend of the Cybermen is pretty much four episodes of fictional characters fighting each other. It did become a little bit, I don't know, samey to me to a certain extent. It certainly didn't lessen my enjoyment of this whole trilogy. But I think the same with you, James. I think if there was a little bit more explanation behind the reasoning, that um, it it would have rounded Mm. out this particular mystery just a little bit better for me. Yeah, I just think it's Big Finish being a little bit too clever. And I think they've chosen the wrong trilogy to do it with because you've got such brilliant actors like Fraser Hines and I will say Wendy Pabry is a good actress she's just didn't quite hit the button right on the head for this particular story Okay, well, I think that's about it for what I suspect will be a fairly mammoth version of the Doctor Who podcast next week is another interview week. Trev, you've got the details. I had a chance to uh, talk to a couple of people in the last week, uh, Alex Day and Peter Jewell. Now, Alex Day is behind what I suppose is known as Troc, Time Lord Rock, and Peter Jewell has taken it upon himself to empty all his cupboards and his uh, his uh, rooms and his uh, boxes and put them on display. All his Doctor Who stuff is now on display at an exhibition which you can go see 
I think, uh, for the next month or two. So I had a chat with these two gentlemen in uh, next week's episode. So, yes, please tune in for that. Okay. And in the meantime, you can get in touch with us in all the normal ways, you know, Twitter, email, forums, telepathy, anything else that you can come up with. Uh, (laughs) Marty will give you the details in a second. And in the meantime, Tom and Trev, it's been a pleasure to speak to you once again. It's been just too long. Absolutely. We should we should talk more often. <laughs> Good to be here. Nice to speak to you both, man. Bye. Bye. That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care.